Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the series to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about US abortion case, Prince Harry winning his case against UK tabloid, Kathleen Folbig, Nicki Minaj versus Kanye, netball pay disputes and the consumer watchdog cracking down on influencers. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the actual news, Hannah, what is your personal headline of the week? Nothing to report. And by that I mean, I think we just want to have an open discussion this week (laughs) because we're both having the same personal sentiments but with nothing big to report. Is that true? I think so. I think what we wanted to take this time to say, because it's our last episode, for the year and I think there's a lot around like wrapping up and December and you know festive season but sometimes you just don't feel that festive sometimes yeah. December like I doesn't feel like December to me yet to be honest no and we we're talking about this before we started recording I think part of it is and you know fight me if I'm wrong but I don't feel like the usual like decrease and decline in work and like increase in festive spirit has occurred yeah. like people are worn down and I don't know what's happening in like the horoscope woo-woo world <laughs> but like I don't know there's a lot of people in my life that are just like we're all doing it tough at the moment I think there's a lot of like you know work issues a lot of my friends are having personal issues and I'm just like very much like is everyone okay this December? I feel as everyone I speak to myself everyone's like I've had a week yeah <laughs> I've fucking had a week I've had a week and I'm not even on my period and I've had a week <laughs> Like, that's the sentiment that I'm getting from everyone. So I but hope I, people have a better week next week. I also think as well, like, like Christmas can sometimes be really stressful, especially if you're, like, family situation or whatever it is. Yeah. It's a little bit more complicated this year or always is for whatever reason. Take the pressure off yourself. Mm. And that's actually advice we should be giving to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm I'm excited. One more thing. I went on another date. Everyone, if you've been following along, Sarah's like, you've got to build momentum. And I'm like, I don't want to. I've been on four now. That's pretty festive of That's you. super not festive. It is emotionally <laughs> confusing and exhausting. <laughs> but I am proud of you. Thank you, Sarah. That's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> A Texas woman was blocked from having an abortion despite it being ruled it was necessary to preserve her life by a lower court. So since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022, abortion in Texas specifically has been made illegal in all cases except to save the life of the pregnant person. So... Now I want to introduce you to Kate Cox, who is a 31-year-old mother of two children who are aged three and one. Now, she and her husband want additional children and were pleased when she fell pregnant. However, tests that were undertaken last month confirmed that the baby she was carrying has a condition called Edwards syndrome. I believe it's also called trisomy 18. And it basically means the baby had an extra chromosome that made it likely it would die in utero or shortly after birth. Now, I listened to an interview with Kate on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, where basically she said she was told by doctors that the baby may live for an hour, maybe a week. Doctors also said the pregnancy posed a serious risk to Kate's health. Now... There are actually six abortion cases being carried out in five different US states at the moment. Kate Cox's is really just one of many in which the legal lines around abortion legalities continue to be extremely murky. Mm. I wanted to highlight this really to point to the fact that while Roe v. Wade was overturned mid-last year, 
we are still seeing so many people battling the legal system to try and access their basic reproductive rights that currently do not exist in the US. It's just terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. I think when it was overturned in Australia, very much there was like there was protesting, everyone was up in arms about it. But I think that obviously there's that fatigue and that exhaustion around one topic and people kind of move on to other news events as you do. There's so much going on in the world right now. Mm. But I think it's important to draw back and sort of look back and go, there's actually current issues they're facing and the law is continually being developed in a way that pushes these people out of the healthcare system and their basic human rights. I just don't understand on what this stands for. Like, yeah. it, she wanted the kid. Like, it doesn't even fit your yeah. religious standpoint then or whatever it is. It's genuinely this mother. She was a mother to be. She wanted a child. Yeah. There's a risk to her life. And it's a risk to her life. And what's interesting is it kind of raises the question really early of what does pro-life mean? Yeah, then? exactly. That's if my you're going to argue the pro-life point, but you're not supporting the person carrying the child and the child is going to die, so you're not preserving any life. Then it's not pro-life, it's an agenda. Yes. Pop off. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's true. Yeah, it's true. true. So... Kate sought permission to end her pregnancy after she learned that the fetus had this fatal genetic condition. A district court judge said that she qualified for this medical exception under the Texas law, but the Texas Supreme Court then overturned the lower court's decision. So this is where we're currently at. Now, before the ruling was handed down, Kate actually left the state to have her pregnancy terminated somewhere where it was legal. So it's already occurred, Mm. as thousands of other women from Texas have already done since the law was overturned last year. Which is an expensive thing to do on top of already expensive procedure. And this is is exactly the point, is it's inaccessible. But the thing is, it's like what you're facing is a decision where you're like, financially, I might not be able to provide for a child, but right now, financially, I can't terminate a pregnancy. Mm. So it's this, it's a horrible, horrible decision to have to face. And also to go and travel to have this procedure undertaken, if you're not supported, it is so difficult because you obviously need time mm. after that and space and resources to get back to your home. So yeah. it's obviously very convoluted. Now, in this ruling, the Texas Supreme Court basically argued that exceptions to the bans were legal only when the health or the life of the pregnant person was seriously threatened. But they argued that Kate Cox's condition and specific case did not meet that standard based on the arguments that were presented in court. So the court basically said that the law allowed for abortions based on a doctor's reasonable medical judgment. So if doctors were confused, the Texas Medical Board could step in with guidelines, is what the court said. Mm. But here's the problem. Doctors have basically been saying that the risk of performing an abortion that they believed was necessary could then later be questioned by the state and they could therefore be prosecuted for decisions they made. Medically professional decisions in their expert opinion could then be later reviewed and examined and they could face major punishment for that, for using their expertise, making a decision and acting on it. And if the courts then, what, looked at it and said, oh, actually, I think she could have had that kid. Exactly. (laughs) So basically, you've got a lot of doctors who may be willing to provide abortions and may be willing to look at these patients and make determinations, but the risk to their personal lives is so great that often they will refuse them or be unwilling to make the determination. So it's basically this question right now of go ahead with the procedure and risk felony prosecution or wait until the pregnant person's health deteriorates to the point where then the court wouldn't question your decision-making. Yeah. Right. And isn't that just ridiculous that then the court is now having an impact on medicals' professional abilities to just do their jobs? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously court arguments 
are based on hypothetical situations and scenarios and belief mm. systems and documentation and different boards' perspectives. Like it's so complex and convoluted that often in these cases they're looking for the fault. Yeah. They're looking for any opportunity to tear them to shreds. But what's ridiculous is that you would expect doctors to always err on the side of caution. Yeah, and it comes exactly back to this pro-life argument. Obviously we are both pro-choice, but to the people that are arguing that you know we're pro-life and we support, you know, it's almost like arguing for the rights of the fetus. And it's like, but what about the person that is living and breathing and well currently? Mm. Because that is a mother to two children who are very much alive and present. And when you're putting the mother's life at risk and arguing for a fetus that has a fatal genetic condition that will die, I don't see in what world the moral decision is to force her to give birth to that child. So it's a really complex case and one to be watched closely, along with many of the other cases that are unfolding. And I will provide an update with this as soon as we have another one. It's just scary. It is. Finally a W for Prince Harry, winning in damages in phone hacking case against UK tabloid The Mirror. So you guys might remember this story from about six months ago, where Prince Harry became the first senior royal to be cross-examined since the 19th century after testifying in London's High Court this week against Mirror Group newspapers. And the reason behind that was he alleged that Mirror Group newspapers published over 140 articles with information that they gathered using unlawful methods, namely phone hacking. So Mirror Group is a publisher of like the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, the Sunday People. And it was really interesting when this happened because the, Prince Harry was actually only one of about 100 complainants, including other famous people like ex-footballer and TV presenter Ian Wright, Girls Aloud star Cheryl Cole, the estate of the late singer George Michael. Like, it was a really big deal. And they were all suing MGN, so that's the Mirror Group, over alleged unlawful information gathering over a two-decade period from 1991 to 2011. So back in June, when Prince Harry took the stand, there were a few major takeaways. First thing is he really went after the UK government, saying he believes they've hit rock bottom and suggesting that his mother, Princess Diana, had been a victim of phone hacking prior to her death in a car accident in 1997. He also claimed it was a major factor why him and Chelsea Davey broke up way back when. The prince actually told the court that he once found a tracking device on the car belonging to his girlfriend, Chelsea Davey. And during the trial, one of the big points that was made was there was an article published back in 2000 which detailed his 16th birthday party celebrations at a London pub. And in his witness statement, Prince Harry said, I don't know how anyone could have known I was at that particular pub at that particular time in order to be there taking photographs of me. I now understand that the byline journalist and the 3AM desk as a whole are well known in this litigation for being involved in phone hacking and other forms of unlawful information gathering. That one really struck me because I was like, he's fucking 16. Yeah. He's a child yeah. that you are stalking. Yeah. And hacking his phone. It is sick. That is terrifying. Can yeah. you imagine... The trauma. The trauma of the, that? The deep mistrust that you would feel towards everyone in your life. Absolutely. But you would be terrified to leave the house. Well, not to mention if you do truly believe, and there is evidence to suggest, very much so, that Princess Diana faced similar stuff. And that's his mum. Like, I feel for this whole situation. I think yeah. that is awful. But the verdict was on Friday that they admitted, the court agreed, that he was victim to phone hacking and he was awarded over $140,000 British pounds. In damages. In yeah. damages, yeah. That not only it happened to him, but to his friends and associates. And then the Mirror Group came back and their response to it all, it, 
was to say, we welcome today's judgment that gives the business the necessary clarity to move forward from events that took place many years ago. Where historical wrongdoing took place, we apologise unreservedly and take full responsibility and paid appropriate compensation. Can I just say, I know that that he has a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money that they've awarded him. No. I think he was after more. Well, I just, I read that and I think, I know that it's probably, like, realistically, he doesn't need the money, it's not about that, but that figure for the trauma cause doesn't feel right to me. No, and I think it's a weird one that you get a bit of a sour taste in your mouth because it's like, oh, Harry and Meghan, more money. Like, Mm. there's so much around that. Yeah, of course. But objectively, you're right. Yeah, a lot of damage for not much compensation. Anyway, that was an interesting point, I thought. Yeah, and then Harry made a statement. Well, his lawyer read out a statement in front of the court on his behalf that said, I've been told slaying dragons will get you burnt in the light of today's victory and the importance of doing what is needed for a fair and honest press. It's a worthwhile price to pay. Yeah. But you know what else is interesting is that, is that of course, Piers Morgan is involved. Oh, he would be, wouldn't he? <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. Well, as you probably know or could guess, Piers Morgan is one of the most high-profile critics of Harry and Meghan, and he was also the Daily Mirror's former editor. So when the court ruled on Friday that there was compelling evidence that the editors of each of Mirror Group's newspapers to quote, knew very well that voicemail interception was being used extensively and habitually and that they were happy to take the benefits on it. Of course, Piers was questioned as an editor. Fascinating. And the the reporters went outside of his home after the judgment was handed out and he said, I've never hacked a phone or told anyone else to hack a phone and nobody has produced any actual evidence to prove that I did. Classic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Show me. Show me then. (laughs) Okay. And the other thing is, is like the police have already said that they will consider the judgment carefully. Like, because I think that's one of the big questions now. It's like, will criminal proceedings follow? Because this wasn't actually, no one's actually gotten arrested or anything over this. But there is kind of no doubt that this will or at least Harry's gonna push for that, I would say. But really, my thoughts on all of this is that the UK tabloids are fucking vile Mm. and they always have been yep like yes they've attacked harry and megan for for years and years but i think people forget that like no royal has been safe from this like they attacked kate middleton before this just as badly like she was weighty katie for years and like they weren't a fan of kate until they had someone they had someone else to hate like Honestly. They have to have someone to hate. The media has to have someone to hate always. Yeah. You look at how it's played out with every single royal, they've all been victim. I also wanted to point out that the prince will also be pursuing News Group, which owns The Sun and the defunct News of the World, as well as associated newspapers, which own the Daily Mail. So they will all be different cases, all with different evidence. He's going after all of them. Amazing. Mm. Pop off. Mm. Kathleen Folberg, who was once described as Australia's worst female serial killer and most hated woman, has had her convictions overturned after serving 20 years in prison. So, if you're not up to speed on this story, basically Kathleen Folberg's four children died one after another in the years between 1989 and 1999. Caleb was her first child, who died suddenly at 19 days old. Her second child, Patrick, died at eight months old in 1991. Her third child, Sarah, died in 1993 and was 10 months old at the time. And her last child, Laura, was 19 months old when she died in 1999. Now, Folbig was charged with smothering them and convicted of three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. And this was in 2003. In this, it was a highly publicised trial that relied 
majorly, quite significantly, on her husband's accusations and her own diary entries, which pretty consistently expressed guilt Mm. over the children's deaths. Yeah, I remember reading, but it's just Mm. the most insane story. Yeah, and so she was sentenced to 40 years initially, which was later reduced to 30. She served 20 before she was released. Now, she had always maintained that she was innocent, but it wasn't until 2011 when a law professor wrote a book called Murder, Medicine and Motherhood when basically the public became aware and started to raise questions and suspicions about the validity of the conviction. Now, it was in 2018 that new evidence emerged, which basically discovered that Folbig's two daughters had carried a rare genetic variant that perhaps may have caused their deaths. What's interesting about this is that this case would have just gone cold if this book wasn't written. Absolutely. It's so fascinating watching where the pivot is. Yeah. Where the like complete fork in the road is between nothing ever happening and this woman never having questions raised or being looked into. Um, so it's fascinating because, yeah, in addition to this, like this genetic discovery, it was a testimony of the law professor um, who basically then said that the children could have died from basically like a heart inflammation that is also known to result in sudden death of infants. Mm. So researchers had also found in addition to this that her sons had an alternate genetic condition. It was basically a genetic, genetic mutation which was linked to sudden onset epilepsy in mice. What? Now, I'm not a woman in STEM. This is just a fascinating, it is a fascinating read because it's obviously horrific and you can see that this woman was so, so hated by the Australian public and you understand like the death of children, it, it hits particularly yeah, hard. of course. But then this is so such a domino effect of things that have unfolded. Basically, over a period of time after these discoveries were made, there was a petition and protest for an inquiry to be held and for the case to be basically re-examined and looked into. And there was a lot of scientists and different members of the community that like really pushed hard because a large part of the science community really advocated for her innocence around this. Basically, then, as a result of all this petitioning and work by the community, a government inquiry was held in 2022, and there was a public recommendation made in November of 2022 that said that the New South Wales criminal appeal court should consider clearing her convictions. Mm. Basically, then the chief justice who led Falbig's inquiry put in a press release saying that he could clearly conclude there was reasonable doubt as to her guilt for every offence that she'd been convicted of. I think something that's really interesting about this story and quite sinister is that Falbig was actually originally arrested in 2001, which was two years after her now ex-husband, Craig, had discovered her diary and was absolutely convinced that she had killed the children. During the trial, he testified against her. He was accused by the defence of lying to police and fabricating evidence to make her look like she was guilty. So there's so many different factors at play that led to this conviction that now looking back on it with the new information we have, it obviously kind of transforms our perception of how this is all unfolded. He has since refused to provide a sample of his DNA basically when asked to assist the inquiry into her conviction and he's called for a retrial too. So he still doesn't believe it? No. God, that's like such an interesting psychological case of yeah. like that's maybe something he's had to reason with and come to terms with and that's how he's perceived it. I mean like four, four of your kids dying would be just so, so traumatising. And then for the entire public to believe it was you and to class you as Australia's worst serial killer. And honestly now after 20 years in prison and, you know, I was reading earlier today that she, you know, was beaten in prison. There was an incident oh where she was actually God. beaten by another inmate. And you look at it and you go, what is the compensation? Will the, how can yeah. the government, how can the Commonwealth adequately compensate someone for that 
length of suffering because not only have you got like things like lost income, you've got lost life, then you've got the trauma of the way the public treated you, you've got the trauma of the media treatment, and then you've got the trauma of the actual deaths of your children. And oh, how do you. I can't ha- even get my head there, around there it. There is no number, but how do you make that? Valuation. I don't think you can. I don't think, I don't you, think, think you can either. Can. And I think as her husband, if that is something that you fully convinced yourself of, and to now find out that she was your innocent, loving wife and you did not stand by her and she's just gone through all of this. Like, how do you even begin but to process it? N- how do you even begin to apologise? Like, you, you don't. But there's, also, there's also questions that he's fabricated the evidence. So maybe <sighs> not even that he believes she did it, but that he actually messed with the evidence you know like we don't know but it's it's a fascinating criminal case it is a fascinating test of our justice system and it's it's honestly the one of the biggest injustices in all of history yeah Nicki Minaj has blocked the release of Kanye's new album by not approving a collab song she did with him called New Body so Kanye was set to release his new album Vultures which is a full-length collaboration with Ty Dolla Sign last Friday but the track, which has been described as an ode to plastic surgery, where he's done with Nikki, was actually, they actually started on it back in 2018, ages ago. They tried to then re-record it in 2019 as and put like a gospel spin on it for the Jesus is King album. And they gave Nikki like a whole new verse on it. And then that version was never released either. And then Nikki complained in 2019 and said, I done wrote three different verses and I don't know, we ain't seeing eye to eye on it. The song was also reportedly then not considered for inclusion on the 2021 album Donda. And then Nikki then described it as the hit that got away. Shortly after when this new album was meant to drop, he then posted a message to Nikki on socials being like, may I call you about clearing new body on the new album? And Nikki then went on live stream on Instagram saying, regarding Kanye, that train has left the station, okay? No disrespect in any way. I just put out a brand new album. Why would I put out a song that has been out for three years? Come on, guys. Whoa. It's so weird. Like, Kanye's literally delayed his whole album release for this one song that he's fucked around for years. And then kind of making it Nicki Minaj's fault when she has literally this week put out a new album and she has not put out a new album in five years now. So it's called Pink Friday 2 and it's very long awaited. I just, why would she want to advocate for Kanye's album when she could be advocating for her own? That just doesn't make any sense But to this me. also could be a marketing tool. It could be. But I also think when she started writing this song and wanting to work with him, 2018, 2019, that was before Kanye went off the rails. Yeah, true. You know, Kanye has come out and said some pretty heinous things. In this new album, he's also collabing with Chris Brown. Like, if I was Nicki, I'd be looking at this like, no, that 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 train has left the station. Yeah, that's fucked. But she's also, like, there's a lot of hype around this new album of hers, and it's already doing really well. And she's also releasing a documentary about her life and her career around it. She actually made this documentary ages ago, and she's just been waiting for this album to come out so it matches and goes together. But, like, just weird press around for this to be such a big story this week. Yes. And not just the fact it's the first album in five years. After a long period of negotiations and union action, two major pay disputes ended last week for New South Wales paramedics and Netball Australia players. So let's start with paramedics. 
Basically, New South Wales paramedics will receive an average pay increase of 25% over the next four years, which will positively impact, I I think it's about 5,000 paramedics in the job around the state. Now, this is really in an attempt to bring New South Wales in line with the ambulance service offerings around the country. I actually read that Queensland's base salary was about $20,000 a year higher than the New South Wales paramedics base salary. Like, it was a huge distinction. How did that happen? Yeah, exactly. It's tens of thousands of dollars disparity between jurisdictions in Australia, between states and territories. Isn't New South Wales also like very much understaffed with paramedics? Yeah, it's just, it, like the conditions, they haven't had a pay rise in so long. And that's why there's so much contention around this deal, mm. because there was major union action that's been going on for, I think it's something like eight months. And essentially, it was against the Min's Labor government who were really fighting back hard. And it resulted in, I think it's 2,000 paramedics basically committed to not renewing their registration in the new year. So allowing their registration to lapse, which means they actually aren't able to do their job on January 1st. Mm. And that causes so much chaos and one of the biggest times of the year for call-outs because it's obviously something where people are partying, people are out and about, and the danger level is higher in summer as well. Mm. But under the new agreement, the base salary of a typical paramedic will increase from $79,000 a year to $103,000 a year by July of 2026. It's just really interesting to me because, you know, like my best friend is a paramedic. And so like I I sort of know a lot of paramedics in New South Wales. And it's it's really interesting because, you know, she sometimes says like, I am being paid less to support someone's airway and to save lives than, you know, the bouncer at the door of the nightclub is being paid just to stand there and check licenses. Like, the way that the pressure that's applied to them, the conditions they work under. And, you know, a lot of the time I would say to her, oh, I thought your base salary was higher. And she's like, oh, I get paid more than that because I've not been taking meal breaks for six months because we don't have time or capacity. And so it's conditions like that where it's the amount of overtime, it's the amount of extra shifts, it's the amount of meal breaks they're not taking. It's it's the poorer work conditions they face in order to make a livable wage. And I think it's one of those things where the general public doesn't actually understand the trauma that's involved in a role like that. And to ask people to take on that as a career path and to face so much in the workforce. Not only do they face traumatic conditions, but they risk their lives every day because oh, yeah. we know that they're, you know, they are not safe a lot of the time in the environments they work in. And like, obviously I feel like a very personal connection to this story because like I've watched a lot of my close friends be fighting this and taking union action over the last few months, which has been really inspiring, but it's really sad how hard they've had to fight to have a pay increase that they have deserved for a really long time. Yeah. I think the overall sentiment is that I've heard is that they are happy with it. Um, and I, re- I believe that they were offered a 19% increase a couple of months ago, which they rejected. So now they've reached that 25 mark and they're happy with that to agree to it. And that deal came in pretty quick after the threats about the lapsing of registration were yeah. made towards the government. Shame it took that, but thank God. Absolutely. And it, it really, at a base, it's like pay people who are literally employed to save the lives of members of our community. Pay people who are first responders. Like, it is, it's really the bare minimum. Yeah. So, very, very passionate about that topic. Also, as a netball girly through and through, I'm also passionate about the end of the netball pay dispute. Now, if anyone's been paying attention to this, I'm sure many listeners have because we all love a bit of WD action. Just kidding. I'm a goal shooter till I die. <laughs> but the netball pay dispute has been going on since, I believe it was February. And players have now signed a three-year deal after volatile discussions for yeah, most of the year. Mm. The deal was announced literally the day after the CEO of Netball Australia, Kelly Ryan, resigned, effective immediately. 
And the changes mean the minimum salary will now be $46,000 a year with an 11% pay rise over three years. The average salary of a netball player is now expected to be about $89,000 under the new agreement at the end of these incremental increases over the next three years. Right. So another key element of the deal, which I think is really worth noting, is that Netball Australia and the players have also entered into a revenue share model partnership, which basically means they will receive 20% of sponsorship above forecast revenue. That's amazing. So that's, it's a huge element of the deal, which I think is really important to talk about. We've obviously seen many legal threats. We've seen attacks by players and Netball Australia on each other. Like the way I've seen this union discussions and the way Netball Australia has treated the players has, has been pretty despicable. Mm. And it is so worth talking about because it's really interesting the way that you know, we haven't covered it enough, but I think it's really important to say that the news has not reported on this. Like we were talking about the cricket, I think it was the men's cricket team or Cricket Australia. Who supported the netball yeah, team. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. basically put, I think it was 100 or 200 grand into a fighting fund because yeah. they, you know, a lot of the players I was reading had been like sleeping in their cars in September because haven't been being paid while they've been fighting this out. And that is such a massive sacrifice to be making to say we deserve better at a minimum. And so you know, this fighting fund was helping pay for a lot of their basic necessities and things while they had this fight with Netball Australia. And it is so sad to see how how low it got and how volatile the discussions became because there was a lot of threatening to sue. There was a lot of threatening over different elements of the past contract about like events they had to attend. We also saw the controversy last year around Gina Reinhardt as a sponsor. Yeah. We saw Gina pull out and the Victorian government actually stepped in and filled that sponsorship place. So we've been seeing a lot of contention in the sport. And I think at a time in our country when women's sport is being so celebrated and invested in in other areas, yeah. it this is this is just a sour taste. Exactly. It's really sad to see pretty much the biggest participation rate sport in Australia, which is netball. I think it's like 1.2 million people in Australia play netball. To see the athletes at the highest level of this game, which is a traditionally women's game, be so underpaid and mm. so, treated so poorly by the governing body is despicable. Mm. It's good to see that this is the outcome. It's good to see this wrapped up and good to see it wrapped up on this side of the year. Yes, too. and I, I hope the players are happy with the outcome. I obviously don't have first-hand knowledge of that, but I think a lot of them are probably just really glad it's over. Yeah, the relief. Yeah. Influencers are being told, stop being fake. This time, not by just a disgruntled normal person, but by the National Consumer Watchdog. So the National Consumer Watchdog is calling out influencers over the rise of misleading advertising claims. Now, it is law for content creators to have to make it clear in their posts when it's like a sponsorship deal. However, a review by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the ACCC, found potential breaches across 81% of the accounts they surveyed. So the ACCC is looking at new enforcement action to protect us poor consumers. Poor from consumers. Falling, from, from falling victim to this. So in particular, pointing out like fast fashion brands and like how they targeted young audiences via influencers. Also mummy bloggers and like parenting influencers for like tagging household products or like tagging stuff in their posts, but they're not actually saying is that tag because they've asked you to tag that or you've been paid to tag that? Like, it's quite ambiguous. Interesting. Which yes. is interesting. Or it's that they are disclosing if it's a sponsored post, but they're, like, doing it at the very end of a very lengthy video or doing it in tiny font or, like, burying it in a caption, like, mm -hmm. that you have to, like, see more for sort yep. of thing. Also, the other thing they pointed out as very ambiguous is when influencers will get on and, like, thank businesses. They're like, oh my God, thank you for sending this. But it's not clear 
then... Was it gifted? Was it gifted? Is this post you're making now genuine because you love whatever you were gifted or because that is a sponsored post? Like, it's really interesting. It is really interesting. That it is quite confusing. Yeah. So, so what, like, what comes next after this? Well, so pretty much the ACCC will update its guidelines next year for creators and businesses. I think all it's going to be is just reminding influencers off their obligations to still uphold consumer laws and to make that a bit more enforceable. But I really just don't know how you'd actually enforce this. Like, it feels like this is a really hard thing to pull back in. And the other thing I think of is, like, especially when they were talking about fast fashion brands. Now, if I go on TikTok, a lot of people that, like, these fast fashion brands will target will be, like, up-and-coming influencers, micro-influencers. Most of the time... They're like 17 years old, 18 years old, 19 years old. So they don't really understand consumer law themselves for the most part. Like, they're really young. I wonder if that's also really hard. It's kind of interesting because I I agree it is difficult to enforce that and it is hard to expect that of people that are just sort of learning what what employment is and what business looks like and all these things. And what influencing is or like when they shoot up really quickly. But the reality is just because you don't understand a law doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. I feel like I have first-hand experience of this hashtag influencer, but I have been sent a lot of free product and I have done paid partnerships Mm. and I don't – I actually think I've posted about gifted items twice and, like, Mm. I was sent this. It's really good. But I will always disclose and hashtag and do the clear – outline. Yeah. And it's because I really don't like myself when I'm consuming content and I feel like I'm being it's bon con and I'm I'm being lied to. Mm. When it's it's interesting though because I did a paid partnership recently and it obviously it had all of the relevant hashtags it said in the caption it was paid partnership it all and it also has at the top of the video paid partnership. And it says who it's with. I still had I remember I had a man message me and say you weren't clear enough. Really? And I thought I've mentioned it four times. Yeah. I don't know what more I can do. So one of the things that interests me too is like, for me, as someone who has a hyper-awareness around it because I do this sort of work, I'm always noticing how other creators are disclosing. Or not disclosing, Exactly. But even though I was, I thought I was clearly disclosing and then I was met with a contradiction where someone criticised me and and I thought, oh, interesting, what more could I have done to make that clear? Or... Are people not really looking out for this? Are people just like, this is content in my feed, I'm not really considering or valuing whether it's paid? You know what? I don't think I'm considering it that much personally because I don't know whether TikTok just got really boring and not funny because I feel like when I first got on TikTok, I was like, this is hilarious. Mm. If I go on TikTok now, it's just a huge ad. Yes. Like, I've almost resigned that all of it is. Like, yeah. I or I'm on a weird algorithm right now, but everything is like, okay, this is what I'm wearing. Here's my haul. Yeah. It's just video after video of the same thing that I go on if I'm in a spinny mood. Yeah. <laughs> like- I, I get that. It's funny, though, because on TikTok, I find that it's way less clear because you can't see the caption in full. Mm. So, like, a lot of the time you see, like, the first five words of a caption, but then I always go and click through to see if it's an ad or not. And I, there's no, like, categorization at the top like there is on Instagram. So I find it a lot less clear. But what's interesting to me is I actually do like consuming paid content. Like Mm. I I was just telling one of my friends the other day that they had put up a post that I used the product when I was in Japan to book every experience I booked. And I went to her and I was like, thank you for doing that paid partnership. That I'd booked 10 things through that app. It was brilliant. Yeah. She was like, yeah, they were great to work with. And I'm actually more interested in asking like the back end, like how was that experience with the brand? I get a lot of value from it, but it's about like I trust who is recommending certain content and then a lot of people who do too much, I'm like, I trust your judgment less because you clearly are willing to do more product 
pushes. Yeah. So it's actually about the value you offer versus how much product you're pushing. And some people are mm-hmm. overdoing it. It makes them less trustworthy. But I also think there's a case for when you're an established influencer, you can be more picky. But when you're starting out or whatever it is, you're just trying to make money. You're just excited someone wants to give you a product. Yeah. You're like, great. Yeah. I'll sell my soul. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. Like, I try to pick people that I or organizations that I think are aligned. But, you know, there's, you look at others and you think, where's the point of selling out? Yeah. And that's a hard determination. I just think this is the future of marketing. It's kind of unavoidable, but I just, it's just going to be interesting how you continue to be transparent. Agreed. Okay, we are at the Q&A section again for this week. Thank you so much for sending stuff in. If you want to send questions in, you can on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. But we also just want to take a second to say that we will be taking a break for Christmas. We will be back on the 30th of January in your ears, but we are taking a little break over the Christmas period and we'll be enjoying ourselves hopefully and getting rested so we can bring you the news in the new year. (laughs) Bring you the news. But please continue to send us stuff throughout that because it's fun and we love to see it. And we're getting to the Q&A. So this week we sent in from Bella and she says, thoughts on Olivia Rodrigo's new man. Now, can you, you know me, pop culture useless. Can you explain to me and put into context who this man is so that I can then debate you on something about it? Yeah, they pretty much hard launched, but his name is Lewis Partridge and he's, he's an from actor. Anola Holmes. He is. He's from Anola Holmes, which is the Millie Bobby Brown movie Sherlock Holmes-esque. It also has like Henry Cavill in it. Great. I love Anola Holmes. It was a great watch. It was great. And I think this got quite a bit of a stir. Yes, because it's Olivia Rodrigo and we're like, yay, a great album's going to come from this. But <laughs> secondly, because everyone's kind of excited to see him with someone his own age. Whoa. Yes. Who's his ex? So his ex is a girl called Sydney Chandler. And Sydney, have you seen Don't Worry Darling? Yes, loved it. So she was in Don't Worry Darling. Yep. And I think what was a little controversial about their relationship is Lewis was 19 when they started dating, and she was 27. Age gaps. Age gaps in relationships is a really interesting point. This is why I thought this question was interesting, because I could debate this for a really long time. I think it matters. Like, I think if you're looking at a 30-year-old and a 37-year-old, I actually don't care that much. Because your life experience is actually not that different by that point. But I think that between... 19? I think for people under the age of 25... You should not be dating someone that is more than three years older than you. I agree with that. Yeah. I, oh, I know some people are like, are the exceptions or whatever it is. But for me, when I read that, like 19 and 27, I'm not even 27 yet. I don't think I would look at a 19-year-old. I wouldn't look at a 25-year-old when I was 20. Like, I am really struggling. I think that that gap is really significant at that age. And, like, you know, yes. my sister's 18 and I said she's just got dating apps and we've been talking about this. And I constantly on her, what is your age range? Because I don't think you should be dating someone older than the age of 21 right now at mm. 18. If I think of myself at 19, I mean, she thought she knew everything. She knew nothing. nothing. <laughs> like- it's a classic. And I think it's it's... You know, people will be like, it's legal. Sure. Okay, cool. If that's what we're going to play as a black and white argument, I think that's problematic. I think there's a lot of gray area. And yes, it can depend on the two parties involved. But I think it's about power imbalances. Mm. And that power dynamic, I would not argue is equal. I would say it's unequal. And I think it's problematic because I think that the younger person can be taken advantage of and may not quite know what is health and security and safety in a relationship. Yeah, and I think... um when this happened as well, it didn't actually get a lot of traction. No. When so they were like dating when Don't Worry Darling premiered. 
And like, I think he went, he was her date to the film, but because there was so much drama around the Don't Worry Darling set and that particular premiere where it was like, are they standing next to each other? Where's Mm. Harry? Where's Olivia Wilde? No one paid attention to them. Anyway, really interesting. Didn't cover a lot about, I mean, I hope Olivia is happy. I hope they're happy. Back to that. Sorry for your Q&A. We went completely off the rails there. (laughs) They had a hard launch making out photo against a car. Slay. They're the same age. Yeah. Slay. (laughs) Thank you for listening again this week. You can send in any questions on bigsmalltalk underscore pod and then share, like, subscribe. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I'm (laughs) delirious today. Do it all. And we'll see you next year. Thank you guys for listening. Have a good end of year break and see you January 30. Bye.